if you are interacting with someone, uh, whether they're a Christian or not, and you're just talking about your experience as a Christian in the body of Christ, in the family of God, as you talked about that with them, would your experience, your personal experience, and would the church body, the church family, that aspect of it that you belong to, whether that's here, Lion and Lamb, or whether that's someplace else, would your description of your experience in the family of God be something that was found desirable by someone else you were engaging and talking to? And how would you describe it? What kind of terms would you use to say, this is what life looks like for me because I'm a Christian walking out the faith with others in God's family? So as we're thinking about this, in my mind, I'm not thinking about things like saying to someone, I go to church on Sunday. That's how I define life in the family. I go to church on Sunday. Or I've learned things from the Bible, helpful as that is. Or I found a place to look for dates or to network. I'm not talking about those things either, right? More on the emotional level, more on the life experience, what does that look like for me? Now, some of the things that I would hope would be normative for any of us, especially as those plugged in at Lion and Lamb, would be things like, I feel like I have a personal presence and stake in that church. Others know me and I know them. I have ministry. I'm committed in service to the church and I'm served by others. That that it's personal. You know, for some of us, either now or in the past, life in God's family is primarily about where I go to church. And guys, if that's the depth or the breadth of our experience of the family of God, we are a pathetic person or a pathetic lot. Because that has nothing to do with what God wants us to sense His purpose and His place for us in His family looks like. It should be rich and deep and full. And if it's not, we should go home and do some homework and say, Lord, in what ways can I or can we or can we collectively step up and be more fully family in the way God wants us to be family in the body of Christ to each other? We're in week two on a series called The Church as Family. If you missed last week, uh, listen to it online. We talked about uh, God has not called us to live life in isolation, the loner, that, that family is the model for relationships that God has called us into. And also there's a number of ways in which we tend not to do that, but that really is the call. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if He's your Savior, you are in God's family, and God has relationships and responsibilities and privileges He means for you to experience in this redeemed relationship. This morning, the title is Family Life. We're going to look at three ways in which you and I should have this common experience of what life in this family looks like by way of we share our stuff with each other, we share our hearts with each other, and at the end of the day, it's not merely about me and mine. So we could say other things. This isn't in any way covering all the bases. And and again, on any given 
morning in any given message, 40 minutes, there's not a lot of ground you can cover. But we're talking about some big issues here that to be body of Christ to each other, to be in the family collective means that we share our stuff. That's material and financial. It means we share our hearts. That's personal. And it also means that we have a vision for God's place of us in his family that's bigger than me and my wife or me and my friends or me and my peer group that God's family is bigger than that and we need to be tuned into that let's start I hope you have a study sheet by the way we will cover some of these uh, verses and others will sort of fly through but on your first point there we share our stuff with one another and these points I'm taking the order of these out of uh, Joe Hellerman's book I mentioned last week when the church was family um, we say the church is a spiritual family, right? We come from diverse backgrounds and places on the planet and all that. So we don't all look the same, right? Don't all sh- share the same heritage. But spiritually, we are in the same family. We're spiritually connected. But the ties that God has given us are meant to be lived out in the material realities of this life. And that goes to the first point. First uh, John three sixteen and eighteen is the key verse on this. Um, the fact that we share a spiritual connection is meant to be fleshed out, lived out in the reality that we share our stuff, possessions, and wealth with each other. Guys, this this theme alone is remarkable in the frequency it turns out in the Bible, so that we can say if we don't have a heart and an attitude and a mindset. That being in the family of God together means we share our stuff with each other as needs arise. And as we have ability to do so, we haven't even entered the foundational level of what life in God's family is meant to be like and to be expressed through. So John says this, 1 John three sixteen through 18 He says, we know love by this, that He, that is Jesus, laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John's going straight to the source. He says, Jesus, the originator of this church family, this is His model for us. He laid down His life for us. That's the model. And so we're called to lay our lives down for each other. So with that as the understanding, He continues, so whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Do you see the way John phrases this? It calls into question that a person can possibly have God's love in him and turn his heart on a fellow believer, on a brother or sister in Christ. John is calling into question even the possibility. How does, how can the love of God abide in the person who turns a cold shoulder to a brother or sister in need? He finishes verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed or truth. It's not important at the end of the day, guys, what we say. It's important in what we do. So John says, an acid test for Christ's love in me, or you, us, collectively, is our willingness to share materially and financially with others in God's family in their points of need. It's foundational. The question, how can... Christ's love be in me if I don't turn around and love others. Calls into question the possibility. If you go to James, James 2, James does the same thing 
in the arena of faith. So John calls into question the possibility that someone in Christ, having Christ's love in them, Christ's model of sacrificial love, can turn around and give a cold shoulder to a brother or sister in need. James calls into question whether it's possible that we have faith even to be in the family in the first place if we do the same thing John talks about. So he says in James 2, verses 14 through 16, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? James just expects if if a living, vital faith is in a person, it's going to be expressed in how they live their lives. There's going to be works. We're not talking about anything related to justification, okay? Those who are justified by faith end up living that out in their lives. Those are the good works that follow. So James says... Why say we have faith if there's no demonstration of that being present? Just as John says about Christ's love. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Why do you even speak? And what use is it to say you have faith if there's absolutely no demonstration of the faith? Guys, this is the thing I take away from these two verses. John questions the possibility of Christ's love dwelling in me if I turn my back on other believers. James questions the possibility of faith in me if I turn my back on other believers. That is, this is seen as absolutely foundational to life in God's family. This should go without saying. This isn't extra credit that we share our material wealth with others in need. This is absolutely a given. Don't say you have faith. Don't say you have Christ's love if you don't show that and demonstrate that related to your brothers and sisters in their points of need. You know, I've got to wonder too, just thinking about that, James and John lived through the early days of the church, didn't they? Those halcyon days of the early church that we read about in Luke's work in Acts of the Apostles, this is part and parcel of what you read about the experience of the early church. So in Acts 2, it says uh, believers there were selling their property and possessions. They were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So right there in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church has occurred And these new believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ recognize their needs in their midst. And what do they do? They start selling their stuff so that they can pay for the provision of their brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll qualify this in just a little bit of a way. There's all kinds of things we simply can't address this morning. But moving on to Acts 5, you see more of the same thing. So there, uh, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. It says there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales they'd lay them at the apostles feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need so luke is recording those early days of the church this open-hearted open-handed generosity from those with means to those with needs and let me just qualify this a little bit put this in context remember that the early church was born on Pentecost. Jews were from all over the Roman world were there in Jerusalem for the feast. Maybe they planned to be there for a week and return home. And God upends their life, right? Because they hear Peter preach. Or they hear somebody that heard Peter 
And these pilgrims that are there from all over the Roman world, they get saved. They don't want to go back home now. They want to hear about what this new work is God's about. They outstay their resources. So the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and Judea in these early days, they find themselves with all these brand new brothers and sisters in Christ who have outlived the resources they brought to stay with this limited time frame in mind. And they're like, we're not ready to go home. We want to hear what God is doing. We want to be a part of this. And so the early church says, not a problem. We'll sell our lands. We'll sell these houses. We'll sell these assets we've got. We'll liquidate them. And we'll give the money to the apostles and they're going to distribute. This is radical living, isn't it? This was radical. This was the early church. And, and this wasn't unusual in the life of the early church. If you read folks like Eusebius or even Josephus or some of the other Roman writers, you'll see that this kind of open-hearted, open-handed generosity, this was typical of the early church. Now let me give a caveat on this also. These passages are often used as a model for what we would today call communism. And you simply can't get there from the text. Peter's quite clear in Acts 5. He tells uh, Ananias, a guy who had property and sold it, brought the money, gave it to the apostles. And he, he was scamming because he just wanted a reputation in the church. And so he lied about how much was being given. But Peter's clear. He said, Ananias, the property was yours. You could do whatever you wanted with it. Ananias, the finances from the sale of the property was yours. You could do anything you wanted with it. You could give some or little or none. It's yours. This isn't, uh, this isn't saying communism is the way to go. What you really have were individuals inspired by Christ's love and the Holy Spirit within them saying, Jesus died for me. I'm willing to sell my stuff and support my brothers and sisters in Christ. This was faith in action. This was love in action. This was absolutely typical of the early church. You see the same thing in Acts 1. The first deacons of the church, they were organized because the church was meeting the needs of the widows in its midst. These were both Jewish widows. These were, these were Greek or from the Roman culture that were there in Jerusalem and Judea. The church was taking care of them. These gals were, were elderly. They didn't have someone else to care for them. The church took care of the widows. That's Acts 6. You'll see it again in 1 Timothy 5. I'll just reference that there. You can look at that later. 1 Timothy 5, 3, and 9. And you'll see that the church in Ephesus was doing what the church in Jerusalem had done. It was providing for widows, needy widows in their midst. Uh, the other uh, um, scripture reference you've got right above that is Galatians 2, verses 9 and 10. Galatians is one of the earliest epistles we have. And it's apparently written before Acts 15 occurs. Because in Acts 15... The primarily Jewish church wrote a letter to tell Gentile churches how to interact with the Jewish church, the Jewish element. And apparently that letter had not come out yet. So this is early in the life of the church. And this is why I find this so interesting. So, so Paul is recognized by the believers, the leaders in Jerusalem, that he's been called and gifted by God, empowered by the Spirit, to take the gospel to Gentiles. They get that. And Paul is in Jerusalem and he's meeting the leaders of the church. Now, it, we won't develop this this morning, but remember, the church is Jewish. The, the Jews don't know anything different. This is just more of God working in the nation of Israel. Right? That, that's their understanding. And suddenly, these Samaritans get saved and they get the Spirit. And these guys don't know what to make of this. 
And then Gentiles get saved, Acts 8 and Acts 10. And Peter defends himself and says, the Spirit fell on them like he did on us. Could I oppose God? This was outside the the early church, the Jewish elements, understanding of what God was up to. Paul says in Ephesians 3, it was a mystery God hadn't revealed. Jews thought you could only draw near to God as a Jew, but now God is saving Samaritans and Gentiles. And this is a rough, rough road. They live under the law. By the way, you'll see this going right through to the end of the book of Acts. What does it look like for me to be a Jewish believer? What does it look like for me as a Jewish believer still living under the law to interact with now brothers and sisters in Christ who are Gentiles who don't have the law? What does all that look like? So with that as the background, consider the only qualification the leaders, the apostles in Jerusalem give to Paul as they're commending him back to the Gentile churches. This is in Galatians 2, verse 9 and 10. So Paul says, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, so Peter and John and James, who were reputed to be pillars, that is the the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They said, God bless you, we're with you in spirit, we understand God's at work with you. So that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So we're good so far. And this is the only thing they ask. This has nothing to do with circumcision. doesn't have to do with meat sacrificed to idols. It doesn't have to do with any of the typical Jewish concerns. They say one thing. They only asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I also was eager to do. The only thing the apostles in Jerusalem say to Paul at this point is, would you treat the Jewish believers like brothers and sisters in Christ? We have desperate needs. You remember Acts talks about a famine in Judea area. We have desperate needs. Would you ask our new Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ to remember our material financial needs and send us help? This is striking for what it doesn't say. And the only thing it says is, would you ask them to treat us like family and help us in our time of need? Now, the longest passage in all the Bible on giving is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Those two chapters are one text one emphasis and it's on the collection that was occurring in the church in the city of Corinth now you'll probably remember we're not going to look at the text but if you've heard uh, God loves a cheerful giver if you sow sparingly you'll reap sparingly uh, give as you've purposed in your heart those are all out of second Corinthians 8 and 9 it's probably a passage we've heard related to giving now the interesting thing is what was the context of the collection there So it was not a church building fund. It was not a Christian theme park. It was not even the proclamation of the gospel. Key and important as that was. It it, it wasn't any of those. It was this collection mentioned in Galatians. It was the collection among Gentile churches to send material financial relief to the brothers and sisters in Christ in Judea suffering under a famine. The longest passage in all the Bible on giving was giving towards brothers and sisters in Christ in the family of God. That's pretty instructive. Lion and Lamb Church, we try and put our money where our mouth is on this. The church, both uh, as a community overseen by leaders, but also as individuals, Uh, We have a benevolent policy. You should have the uh, 
the site at our website listed there on your study sheet. You can look that up if it's of interest to you. But we have lots of folks in this church who simply know of a need in another person or family's life who cut checks or give cash or they'll come up to Bob or someone else in leadership and say, we want to bless some so-and-so. We know they have a need. Would you give this to them? The church has a benevolent giving line item in our budget. We're committed to this. We believe in this. When Kathy and I, going back a few decades, when we were newly married and we were having children as fast and furious as some of you are, we had... I was making nothing, you know, financially. I mean, we felt truly blessed, but finances was not one of those ways we were blessed. We, we were glad if we paid our bills, right? We never missed a meal, by the way. You know, we were never late on a payment. We owed the hospital for one accident after another, one birth after another. We, we didn't miss a month of on-time payments to the hospital, St. Francis here in Topeka, for eight years. One, we'd pay one bill off and there were two or three behind it. You know, pneumonia and all the little... The, the things that kids get in their youth. We were in a church for five years here in Topeka. It doesn't exist anymore. And the church had lots of problems, like every church does. But they were serious about living out the call to be family in the body of Christ. And guys, I kid you not, we were given cash time after time after time after time. We put a deposit on a house for us back in the day, $600. And we turned around and I thought, what was I thinking? That is not the house for us. And I talked to this older brother and I told him that. He said, walk away. Leave the money and walk away. I said, Jim, we can't afford that. He says, God will take care of it. And I know it was him, but we had a check for $600 the next week. The first house we bought was because an elder in that church shoehorned us into a house he was selling way below market value. We couldn't have got a house. We were given an electric panel on the side of our house. We, I get, we were given cars. We were given money just to pay bills or go out on a date. That was our experience in the first church we called home. And I'll tell you, it had lasting influence on us. I mean, biblically, we're committed, but we've experienced it. We've been on the receiving end. And I tell you, if you've been on the receiving end of that kind of brotherly, sisterly conduct by others in the body... You are thrilled when you have the ability to be on the giving end as well. Well, see, you're blessed in both directions. And I'll tell you what else happened. We would go to our parents and we would tell them how we were treated in the body of Christ that we were part of in God's family. And it gave us opportunity to talk about the realities of what the gospel looked like lived out. And my dad would say time after time, I've never heard of a church like this. I've never heard of such a thing before. Guys, this, this is supposed to be normative Christianity. Normative. I should say this too. There are times when it is unwise and it's unloving to give to other brothers and sisters in Christ who have financial needs. And I only say that you can read Second Thessalonians three. There's some other passages as well. So we're talking very generally here again. OK, there's some times in which it is unwise and is not loving. Those are the exception. We're not talking about that. We're talking about genuine, legitimate needs. Now, let me ask you this. So if you or I show up here on Sunday morning and man, I can't pay my bills and and I'm coming in and I'm under this cloud of worry. 
Who would know that? How would anyone else know that? How would anyone know that I'm struggling financially or spiritually or emotionally or with one thing or another? How would anybody else know that? This goes to point two. Unless we were sharing our hearts with others in the body of Christ. Sharing our hearts and our lives with others in the body of Christ. How are they going to know what my needs are if I'm not living out the faith with them? You know, the danger of meetings like Sunday morning is this. We can come here and punch our time card and say, I did that, I went there, I showed up. And I say, Sunday morning is important. And there's some things, bigger meetings like this can do well. So when we're talking about proclamation or teaching the word, these are great. We're talking about collective times of worship. The big meetings are great. Again, what large meetings are not good for, just based on numbers, is sharing our hearts and our lives with each other, right? If you're not conscientiously in some smaller group of Christians, you will not live this out. You can't. Just based on the numbers. You notice Jesus' words in John 15... Have I got there? I'm going there next. They're given in the context of a small group. His disciple. So look at this. John 15, 12 through 15. This is Jesus last night with his fellows, right? He's been living his life with these guys for the last three years. This is his small group. And he's going to be betrayed later that night. And listen to what he says to them. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. Now think of context again here. We said if you don't know context of the, in Israel and Jewish culture, when Jesus says, my mother, brothers, and sisters are the people who do God's will, we lose the, the cutting, significant impact Jesus is making. But this is context here too, context informed. Jesus is a rabbi in the Jewish culture. He is called the master. He is the teacher. He is higher than a professor at a university. He has respect and esteem. The people that he meets with are his disciples, his followers, his students. They are not his friends. So when Jesus says, I'm calling you friends, this is significant. In fact, in this same context, he'll say, you call me master and Lord, and you're right, because I am. But here he bows down and he says, and I'm calling you friend. And this is what he says. This is the demonstration of his friendship with them. He says, I've called you friends because whatever I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. How do you know you're my friend? It's because you know my secrets. It's because I've told you the things that are my absolute most important things that others may not know, but you do. When we're talking about life in God's family, we're talking about this, John 15, as the basis of that model. Brothers and sisters should be friends too, right? Husbands and wives can be good friends, right? A familial bond does not exclude us being good friends, right? 
Jesus says, you know, you're my friend because I've disclosed my heart to you. And he says this in the context of love one another. This is the command. And I've demonstrated it. And this is what it looks like. We share our hearts with each other. We share our lives with each other. We share our sins and our successes. We share the things we're thrilled about, the things we're disappointed in. Jesus says that's his definition of friendship. And friendship certainly ought to be at the bottom, the foundation of life in God's family. He'll say later, Jesus in John 20 will use the family terms. He'll say after his resurrection, go and tell my brothers that I'm going to my father and their father. He gets to that language, but here he says, just in the bonds of friendship, guys, we should at least have that, right? Your friends know you. You've shared your heart with them. You've shared your life with them. You know, we said this last week too. The whole context of the gospel is not information. Information, truth is part of it, right? The truth, the information about who Jesus is and what he's done. That's good. That's where we start. But that information, that truth declaration is an invitation into relationship. So it's relationship back with God as Father. And when you and I come to know God as Father, then it's invitation to relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in isolation. It's impossible. The call of the gospel, the gospel lived out, is lived in relationship with each other where you see this kind of thing going on. We share our hearts with each other just as we shared our financial largesse. We share our hearts. We're known by others in the body of Christ and they're known to us. This is an acid test for me. If you ask yourself, and we're pretty, uh, we're pretty careful, I think, um, about who we reveal ourselves to, I think in ways that are very, very unhealthy, typically. But if you say, what's an acid test for whether or not I'm sharing my heart? You can look at your checkbook and say, I am or I'm not sharing what God's blessed me with with others in the body of Christ, right? That's easy. Look at your bottom line. On this one, ask yourself this. Do others in the body that I call my church home, do they know my sins? Do they know the sins I struggle with? Do they know the things I'm excited about because there's been success or answered prayer? See, I would say that if you don't answer yes to this, I'd say you're not living in God's family the way you're called to. We're doing this, this version of isolation and bubbles, bubble living, island living. We're living as if we're an island. And you know what this gets to for most of us? This simply gets to the issue of pride, the sin of pride. You know, almost all of us, almost certainly, we've got an idol. Now, all of us in here, we have more than one idol. But I'll bet there's a common one to all of us. And it's this. One of our idols, I'd say primary idols, that, that each of us probably has, the idol is the image of myself I want you to believe is true. I have an idol, and it's a version of Mike that I hope you buy. Okay? If that's true and I think it is, then I have to be careful with how I display myself to you. I have to be careful about what I say. Because if I say too much or if I'm unguarded, and there's a time and a place to be guarded, by the way, right? Okay, we're talking about wisdom here too. But if I find for myself that that's the general bent of my life, 
I'd probably argue categorically you're not living out life in the body the way you're called to and probably it's attached to pride. The idol of the image I want you to buy for myself. Guys, as I have looked in my own life in the past, I realize I have an idol for Mike. I want to believe certain things about me are true that aren't. I want to espouse in myself a version of Mike that isn't true. Now, if you're old enough that you, you, uh, you're past your family of origin and, and you grew up with siblings, if you grew up with siblings, or to a younger set in here, if you're still at home living life on a daily basis with siblings, let me ask you a question. Do you care what your siblings think about you generally? I would have told you I didn't. <laughs> Do you know why? Because it's too much work. If you live with each other every day, there's just certain things you cannot pull off, right? You know what my breath smells like in the morning. You know what my hair looks like. You know when I've had a bad day. You know when I'm sharp or whatever. There's just elements of my version of idolatry. I just can't hold up 24-7. So I get over that my brothers heard me speak in anger. Or my daughters or my husband or my spouse, right? There's certain things we just give away because we can't uphold those. But that's what we should have in the church as well. That we, we end up saying it's not worth trying to put up a facade because I'm plugged in with others. And you see, I'm, I'm with others in enough settings on enough occasions with enough temptations and whatever else life throws my way. They know who I am and I know who they are. So I can get over that idol of pride, which I want to sell you a bill of goods and you want to sell me a bill of goods. And we can get down and we can be more truly who we are and who we aren't. You know, you go to the public shower, if you go to the swimming pool, there's no fooling who you are, right? You get in the shower, okay, it's transparent. We know, there he is, there she is, whatever. That's who they are. Well, we want to bring that kind of transparency in a healthy and wise way. Again, we're talking about this primarily in the context of small groups. Groups of six, typically, up to about 12, where I can be myself and others know who I am. And I can share those challenges with them. And they can pray for me. And they'll do the same thing. We'll do that for each other. That's life in God's family as God means it to be. That we share our hearts with each other. Let me go to the third point. This was a title, by the way, of one of Hellerman's sections in, his, in a chapter. Family is about more than me, the wife, and the kids. Family is about more than me and mine. We could paraphrase this. Family is more than me and my single friends. Family is more than me and my peer group, whatever that group may be, okay? So let me read an excerpt from Hellerman's book. And we're jumping in. He's been talking about groups that were addressing men and men's challenges and needs like promise keepers. And that's where, that's where we pick up here. So he's looking back on the emphasis that men were being called up through these groups, okay, to be godly kinds of men. He says, many of us have now come a long way in our ability to understand and serve the wonderful women God has placed beside us. All this is good. But there is a downside to this emphasis on emotional empathy. The erroneous impression husbands sometimes get that leads us to believe that we can somehow meet all of our wives' relational needs. As marriage after marriage has demonstrated, we cannot. Try as I might, there will always be a part of Joanne, that's his wife, 
that I as a male cannot touch. And for my marriage to function at its best, I must come to grips with this reality. To assert otherwise is to romanticize marriage into the surreal stratosphere of dreamland and to set ourselves up for inevitable relational disappointment. I think this is spot on, by the way. And I'm all for good marriages. Now he refers to a a woman in their church named Margie. And Margie has become a de facto member of the Hellerman family just because she's there a lot. All the time, okay? And this is, she's a single adult. She's there living life out with the Hellerman family. He says this A marvelous thing happened as Joanne's friendship with Margie blossomed. My relationship with Joanne blossomed also. Joanne and I had a good marriage to start with, and we have our typical share of struggles today, but our marriage is richer now that Margie is involved in meeting relational needs in Joanne's life that only another woman is equipped to meet. See, there was no loss here. I've shared my wife and my family with Margie, and somehow my life and my family's life is more, not less. He says, from a kinship perspective, what is going on in the Hellerman family is a transition from a nuclear family model to a social system more closely approximating the extended family model of the ancient world. And we talked about that model last week. But we could add here, that's the church or family of God model also. That for me to be involved in the lives of more people than me and mine is not a loss, it's a gain. It's not a negative, it's a positive. One of the key issues we mentioned last week, and and this becomes more and more important, by the way, over time, just demographically, everyone's on equal footing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we're all on equal footing in our position in the family of God. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, single, married, husbands, wives, parents, children. It doesn't matter. Related to each other, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we had a discussion on this in home group last week, maybe, But I love the fact, too, that uh, some churches get caught up in in what's called the clergy and the laity, that there's some people, they're church leaders, and then there's the rest of us. Well, see, this model does away with that. Francis Schaeffer said semi-famously, which I, I loved, he said, I tell other people I'm just an older brother in God's family. He was a key leader in the church. He affected generations for decades, but he said... He didn't say I'm a pastor. He didn't say I'm an elder. He didn't say I'm a speaker. He said I'm an older brother in the family. See, I'm on equal footing with everyone else. We've got different gifts and callings, but our relationship to each other is familial. It's not hierarchical at this level, right? There's other issues related to life in the church. There are lines of authority. I'm not getting away from all that. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks to that. But based on just our relationships with each other, they're horizontal. They're on equal footing. You're a brother or a sister in Christ just like me. We all share that equally. If we come to grips with the church as a family model, then it really liberates us in the relationships we have with each other. And a lot of this is countercultural, which is why if you don't talk about it, you probably don't see it. So this morning there was an integrated Sunday school class here. So you got people from toddler age up through retirement age meeting together in the same group, talking about the Scriptures together. Well, see, that's, that's breaking certain kinds of barriers, isn't it? But you can do the same thing in home groups. 
And you can do the same thing on double dates. You can do the same thing on women's movie nights. And you can do the same thing at women's and men's retreats and advances. So you can mix it up, can't you? It doesn't matter what your age is. Or what your vocation is. We have these venues where we can interact with others in the body where it's not just me and mine. It's others in the body, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have things that benefit me and I have things that benefit them. But if we never have some venue by which we interact with each other, we'll never get the benefit. And we'll miss all these great opportunities God means for us to share. Now, let me close uh, just asking a couple of questions. Are we living life as a loner? Again, ask yourself the question, do others in the body know my secrets? Not talking about it in an unhealthy way. I'm talking about do they know me? Do they know what I struggle with? Do they know enough to pray for me intelligently? Do I know others in the body that way? Is my experience of life in God's family such that if I communicated it to someone else, they would say, that's the kind of church I want to be in? Because at some level, I would argue this, if it's not, if our involvement doesn't look like that, and if our church family doesn't look like that, I would say that either our church family isn't the family God's called it to be, or we are not the family member God's called us to be. There, there's a whole paradigm shift that needs to occur in our thinking by which we're liberated to interact with others. Some of us are using other kinds of groups as surrogate families. We're using political groups, civic groups. We're using sports groups, you name it. And there's nothing wrong with involvement in any of these, right? But we should see life in the family as the starting point. And out of that, we influence and we interact with others. But if you don't start with the family relationships, don't call those surrogate relationships the body of Christ, the family of God. They're not. They can't be. I'm not giving God His due in my participation as His family. I'm passing that on in some other venue in which it's simply not the model and it won't work. So I would just ask us to prayerfully consider this week, am I living life out, me for myself, in the ways I understand God's called, to, called me to as a brother or sister in his family. Am I sharing my stuff? Am I sharing my heart and my life? Do I understand that it's more than about me and mine? And then also, how are we doing as a church, as a collective? Is that something that someone else comes in and they would say, wow, that's the kind of relationships I need and I value. That's the kind of expression of the body of Christ, the family of God that I want to be a part of as well. God, help us to make it so. Father, we are so thrilled that you've reached out to us in Jesus, in his coming to earth as one of us, in his sacrificial atoning sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, his glorious resurrection, which is the gospel and the good news, as the means to call us and call others into your family. And Father, I just pray that we are glorifying you by living this out in all the ways you mean for us to. Father, help us not to hold back, uh, to make little of the gifts you've given us in yourself and each other. But Lord, might we be the kind of siblings in your family you want us to be. Lord, might this church be the kind of expression of the family of God you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.